We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham. Stand to attention when I'm talking to you! On Talk Radio. Dismiss! Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The biggest event so far since the election was called happened yesterday during this show when Nigel Farage decreed that the Brexit party would not campaign or stand in any of the 317 Tory-held seats, leaving Boris Johnson just nine short of a majority, providing they don't actually lose any of them, uh, which is by no means a foregone conclusion. The questions began immediately, of course. Has Nigel Farage sold out for a peerage? Has he been promised a job in the new government? Uh, could he have been worried about Aaron Banks disagreeing with his strategy? And was it all? a stitch-up. On Julie Hartley-Brewer this morning, Nigel denied it and said he simply wanted to get Brexit done. Although he did say uh, he's been offered a peerage on numerous occasions by numerous different politicians. Now there are calls for him to stand down Brexit Party candidates in Labour marginal seats as well. We'll be asking Brexit Party MEP Annunziata Rees-Mogg what changed his mind. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll take a look at the leaked report into the viability and cost of HS2. According to the Times, the government should go ahead with it despite the fact that it will now cost 80 8 billion pounds. What a surprise, eh? 0344 499 1000. We want to hear from you, of course, because you are the people who matter in this election. You are the people who are going to elect the next government. You are the people who should have been taken notice of all those years ago uh, when there was a referendum. So now is your chance to vote in the biggest and most important election, probably for many a decade. Meanwhile, uh, we are being urged to have a green Christmas, but I won't be having one of those. And poor old Meghan Markle's luck just keeps getting worse. Guess what? Now Hillary Clinton says she wants to give her a hug. Could there be anything worse? You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So, the big story yesterday, and still on the front page of the papers today, uh, was basically Nigel Farage apparently making some kind of a U-turn, depending on who you talk to, about how he was going to stand against all uh, Tory candidates in every single constituency in the country. He said he had more than 600 MP candidates ready uh, and waiting to rock and roll. Uh, they were all going to go out there and fight the good fight for a real Brexit deal, because basically Boris Johnson's deal was not Brexit. Suddenly yesterday... That all changed. Nigel Farage suddenly became pragmatic. And I have to say, I've been urging pragmatism for some time here on this radio station. Let's talk to Anunziata Rees-Mogg from the Brexit Party. She's MEP for the East Midlands. And find out what happened, when it happened, and why it happened. Anunziata, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, remarkable turn of events, really, yesterday. Nobody got any kind of a clue as to what Nigel Farage was going to say before he said it, which, which in itself is fairly unusual in this business we are now in. Um, were you surprised that he changed his mind on this? And, and when, as far as you know, did it happen? I, 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 I don't know if surprised is the right word. I think that it was clearly the right decision for the country. And there had been, obviously, conversations going on within the party about the real risks that we're all facing and that Brexit is facing. And with the total stitch-up of the Remain Alliance, um, the way the current parliament has acted to thwart any representation of the will of the British people, I think it was crucial that the Leave supporters come together. It's a compromise. Boris's deal isn't perfect. We all know that. Mm. 
but to make sure that the next parliament can actually do the right thing. Was there much of a debate within the Brexit party itself? Because it's hard to read sometimes some of your colleagues in, uh, in the Brussels party uh, are saying different things, you know, that the party has gone the wrong way, that they were in favour of the first Nigel Farage decision to sort of stand firm and say this is not a deal that we can, st we can live with. Was that all just a bit of bluster to try and see if the Tories would blink? I think within, I, I was a Tory for many, many years, uh, decades in fact, and I think within any party there are always going to be a range of views, mm. and that's particularly true of the Brexit party, where we come from a very diverse political group of backgrounds, and we're not the type of people who shy away from airing our own positions for the uh, decision-making process to be as informed and uh, broad as possible. And, of course, those discussions were going on, and different people did hold different views. And I think this is a really hard decision to have made, and a lot of people will be very disappointed. It's a, it's a great shame that Labour have abandoned their Leave voters so strongly that they uh, have left their voters disenfranchised, and the Brexit Party will be there to support them and provide a democratic choice for Labour leavers. But standing against the only other party that is supporting Brexit could have lost us Brexit entirely. Yes, and that would have been terribly ironic, if not um, worse than that, really, for, for all those people who voted to leave the European Union. But so what's the future for the Brexit party now? Because if, in fact, the Tory party does get a majority, the likelihood is that um, the, the, the withdrawal bill will go through. You guys will all be out of a job, won't you? Well, as MEPs, I very much hope so. I should have been fired a couple of weeks ago, and I wish I had been. You're too hard um, on yourself. <laughs> redundant, if yes, not there fired. You go. Um, but I, I think the future holds us um, hopefully um, having some representation within Parliament. That will be up to the electors to decide, as it should be. But to make sure that Boris Johnson is held to his latest promise, we have had a few that have slipped, but I can sort of see why, because of the immense Remain opposition he was up against in the last parliament. But if we get a leave parliament, to make sure he really is held to account and that we leave deal or no deal at the end of 2020. And obviously our preference would be for a totally clean break Brexit, but whatever happens, it's got to be a Brexit that really returns sovereignty to where it belongs, to the British people, for us to make our own laws, run our own economy, make our own decisions, our own trade deals. That's where it's got to end up. Nigel was talking this morning to Julie Hartley Brewer. He, he denied that uh, he'd had any conversations recently with the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Uh, he also he also was a, he was a little bit woolly on the on the on the peerage offer. He more or less said he'd been offered peerages about six times over the course <laughs> of uh, various different years. But he also said that he was swung by a video that he saw of Boris Johnson promising not to try and extend the transition period. Yeah, uh, and I think that is absolutely crucial. One of the very big worries amongst um, all the Brexit Party supporters and elected members that I've spoken to was that we would enter the transition and because of the fair endeavours, uh, best endeavours clause, that the, those discussions would then go on for years and we would be trapped in this no man's land of the transition period for uh, as far into the future as one could see because how do you prove that your best endeavours have failed? If we're going to definitely leave at the end of next year, that leaves no deal on the table. That leaves 
getting out of any bad deal, any stitch up by the EU um, available for the British government to decide. And that's really important. That deadline has to be stuck to. And what do you make of the uh, Lib Dems saying that they're uh, appalled by this kind of stitch-up by the Leave uh, side of the argument, uh, notwithstanding the fact that they've already formed a Remain alliance uh, over a week ago? Um, hypocrisy by the Lib Dems. Who would have ever <laughs> thought of it? I, I think it's absolutely ludicrous. They've done their very best to stitch-up Remain, uh, revoking Article 50, undoing the referendum of 2016. I think it's yet another... Um, hypocritical statement by a party who just don't believe in democracy. And as far as the, um, the sort of outcome of the election goes, which is obviously up in the air, we won't know for a long time, um, is it more sensible now for um, the Brexit party to look ahead to a new parliament and what role they could play in that? And, and realistically, without getting into individual constituencies, how many seats can the Brexit party win? I haven't done the full cephalogical an analysis of all the seats, but I know that there is huge support um, in particularly Labour strongholds that I've been to in the East Midlands, where they are just so annoyed with the uh, way in which the Labour Party has abandoned them, not only on Brexit, but on all sorts of issues where they just feel they've been ignored and let down by the Labour Party. And I think those people are increasingly turning to the Brexit party. And it, we are, we're not Labour, we're not Tory. We are um, standing up for the democratic rights of the British people. And I think there are opportunities there to really reform the British political system. And what about Nigel himself? Because there's lots of talk of him possibly wanting to go abroad after the end of all of this. And he doesn't particularly wish to stand as an MP. Uh, he, he still could do that if he wanted to. But do you suspect that he will leave uh, for sort of... Uh, greener shores or greener pastures or warmer shores or whatever it is? Oh, well, I can't say I'd blame him if he did. He's been fighting this battle an incredibly long time. I myself am planning to happily go into maternal um, retirement uh, and away from the world of politics, which is uh, not always the nicest place to inhabit. But it, whatever he does, I think he will have learned the lesson that you can't just let Westminster get on with it. We were betrayed in 2016. We were promised Brexit would be delivered. Three and a half years later, it still hasn't been. Uh, the 2017 election, it was in the manifestos of Labour and the Conservatives. It still didn't happen. We can't let them get off that lightly after this election. And if there are no Brexit Party um, MPs elected, is that the end of the Brexit Party? Um, I haven't had those discussions. It's certainly, I mean, I'm not standing for Parliament uh, in this election and I'm hoping to be made redundant as an MEP as soon as possible. I'm quite happy for it to be earlier than the 31st of January. But I think there is a definite discussion that has arisen about the honesty, the answerability of our politicians and how that whole system works and the increasing murkiness of how some of the organisations within government work together to not always deliver 
what the people have asked for, I think is really concerning and does need sorting mm. out. And the Brexit Party can clearly have a role in helping with that. And what about post-traumatic sort of uh, stress disorder for all the people who've been involved in this for three and a half years, including all, everyone in the country, really, is what I'm going to say, without wishing to diminish you know, PTSD. We've all kind of suffered in some way, shape or form from the kind of stalemate, from the frustration, the nastiness that's crept into our society, not just in Parliament but everywhere. Um, what do we do about that? I think we all have to um, come together. That democracy doesn't work without losers' consent, and unfortunately the losers in this case remain are going to have to admit that they didn't win and come behind Brexit. And what we need to do is to have a clear path forward so that businesses can make decisions, so that employment can be secured, so that the economy can thrive, come together and make a great success of this country with free trade deals out across the world and ensuring the free flow of economic uh, success to the UK. And if we can make a success of Brexit, which I think is the most likely outcome, then people will forget in time that there was a difference of opinion and support the great success we see in the future. That there was such a big row about something that wasn't actually that big of a deal. But then, of course, it may well be that it does become a massive deal and there may be people who never let it go and who will continue to campaign to get back in to the European Union if, in fact, we leave it. That there may well be, just as there were in 1975. There were people who never gave up um, campaigning to leave. And 40-odd uh, years later, that um, came true. They got their referendum and we voted to leave, I think this is a generational thing, but we have to support it for now to support our own democracy. I've got a tweet here from somebody called Mark. Now, these people, I'm getting some of these from people who I think were Brexit Party supporters. Can't bring myself to vote for Tory uh, Brino. Now can't vote the Brexit Party, can't vote Lib Dem as I believe in democracy, so I'm left with spoiling my vote or back to Labour. I, mean, I think we've all got to swallow that the bigger picture is Brexit. It is delivering the 2016 referendum result and making sure we leave the EU on the best terms possible. At the moment, and just realistically, the only party that can deliver that in government is the Conservatives. And the Brexit party will be holding them to account every second of the way. But unfortunately, on this occasion, I think a lot of people will have to swallow a, a slightly bitter pill for the bigger, better interests of the country. And what about your own personal kind of political career? Because you've been involved in politics for quite a long time before the Brexit party. What do you think you're going to do? Um, well, I am expecting a baby in March, so I'm thinking I will be nursing a baby in ah, the constituency okay. and um, uh, uh, retiring from the political world. I can't say it's a... a a great place to be. It's a pretty vicious one. Well, it is, it? especially uh, rather bizarre when people start asking if you're having an affair with Nigel Farage, I would imagine. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've never uh, considered it and I'm very happily married, but also it's just ridiculous and I'm not sure that men always get the same slurs thrown at them. No. Um, but the interviewer clearly had an agenda on that occasion. And, uh, no, it's absolutely ridiculous when mainstream journalists are coming up with such mad fantasies. 
It is it's bizarre. A shame. It is such a dirty world. It really but is. But I'm looking forward to getting out of yes, it. Yes, I'm sure you are. Well, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Lindsay Arthur Reese Mogg, the uh, MEP for the Brexit Party in the East Midlands, saying that uh, basically Nigel Farage did become pragmatic did decide that the best way to get Brexit was to uh, stand down Brexit party candidates. I know that many of you hardline Brexiteers uh, or hard Brexiteers, as you might put yourselves, are not happy about it. Some people in the uh, Brexit party, I think, are not happy about it. Certainly, uh, I'll be looking at Alex Phillips' tweets and she doesn't seem particularly pleased uh, with the way that things have turned out. However, uh, they're all still very much behind Nigel Farage. He is, in many ways, the man who got everybody to this place. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We've got much to do, and we've got, of course, another two and hours and a bit to do it in, because Matthew Wright comes on at one o'clock. Before that, we want to take loads of your calls, 0344 499 1000. The game has changed, ladies and gentlemen, as far as the election is concerned, because ever since Nigel Farage yesterday announced that basically the Brexit party would not stand in 317 seats, which are currently held by the Tory party, uh, things have definitely shifted more towards uh, the Tory party uh, and uh, their fortunes becoming improved, you'd have to say. Labour Party not happy. Lib Dems very much not happy. Joe Swinson put out a tweet yesterday saying the Conservative Party is now the Brexit Party, uh, which I'm not sure is entirely unhelpful to Boris Johnson, to be honest. 0344 499 1000. Let's go down under now, though. Andy Halls is in Australia for the sun. Uh, he's covering I'm a Celebrity, uh, which has just been sort of announced. They've all arrived down there uh, in northern Queensland and they are about to enter the jungle on Sunday. Andy, a very good morning. Welcome to the show. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. How are you, more to the point? Because, uh, you know, you've gone uh, a very long way away uh, and you're going to be stuck there for a while. So how, how have you prepared for all this? Well, there's worse assignments than being sent to Australia <laughs> for six weeks. But, I mean, I've spent the last week or so inside the arrivals hall at Brisbane Airport. So I'm looking forward to escaping that and getting down the coast. But... Yeah, we're, like you said, that nine of the ten are now here. Um, the only one we're waiting on is Roman Kemp on right. Capital Radio fame. Uh, we've just had Nadine Coyle come through and Kate Garraway uh, this evening, nine o'clock here on Tuesday evening. Uh, so, we're, yeah, it's looking forward to the start of the series. Should be a good one. I think the lineup's very good. They've spent some good money, I think, on the likes of Ian Wright, James Haskell and Caitlin Jenner. So it should be a good series, I think. Looking forward to it all kicking off on Sunday. And there's no kind of standout sort of superstar, is there? I mean, Caitlyn Jenner, obviously very wealthy and very well-known, but there's no kind of standout megastar, if you like. So that might make it better, perhaps. It's funny, with, with The Jungle, sort of like Strictly, actually, they don't really need a massive, massive name. Last year, they spent 600 grand on Noel Edmonds, which is the most they've ever spent on the show's 18-year right. history. Mm. And then he went after three days, right. so... It's one of those, it's like you could be the biggest star in the world, earn all the money, 600 grand. If the, the audience doesn't like it, it doesn't really matter. So it's one of those shows where I think it's all about the dynamic between the 10 and then the, the latecomers that makes viewers tune in every year. It's been going for 18 years. It's really popular. I mean, it has been one of the I don't think it needs a massive name. No, it has been one of the more successful sort of reality shows, hasn't it? Because it hasn't really faded away in people's memories. When you look at the X Factor, Strictly's obviously still going, but slightly different format. Mm. But all of the kind of the, all of the shows that have been started and, and have kind of faded, this is not one of them. 
I think it's because there's been a, a real shift in what people want from Saturday night, Sunday night, telly or whatever night you watch it. You don't really want that nasty, in-your-face, embarrassing uh, sort of X-Factor format where someone's going to get humiliated in front of millions. With the jungle, it's all quite nicey-nicey. Think of Bake Off. It's very middle-of-the-road, nice telly. I don't think people want public humiliations anymore. I think they want something they can sit down with, with the kids as well as the grandparents and and watch a bit of nice TV mm. without anyone getting too offended. And do you think the people who are in this show now want to be nice, as it were? They want to appear to be maybe even nicer than they actually are because that's what's going to get them to the end of it? Potentially. And I think The Jungle and Strictly are the two ones you can still go on TV as someone whose career might not be thriving and, and get a real boost up. Right. I mean, some of the... Win Look at Harry Redknapp last year. He's in, in his 70s now. And it looked like his days in football were over. And then he went on this multi-million pound stand-up tour where he went around the country. I mean, Harry was probably settling in, ready to retire to the sandbanks. And right. yet, suddenly he's got a new lease of life and a bit more earning power. So I think it's one of those shows, if you go in there and don't upset anyone and don't act like a, anyone particularly unpleasant, you can do really well off the back of it. Mm. But it is, I think it brings out some people's true colours. I don't think you can hide in the jungle because you get a lot of sleep deprivation. You don't get particularly well fed. So... If you're not a very nice person, I think you'll be exposed <laughs> in front of everyone. True. <laughs> and it's the return of Ant and Deck, of course, because uh, they weren't both there last year. Yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see this, actually. I met Ant in the airport when he when he touched down. He seemed pretty happy to talk to the press. Sometimes he, he can be the more difficult, perhaps, of the two. Yeah. Deck is slightly more open with us. Um, there's a little bit of pressure on him, I guess, this year, because the ratings were huge last year. People tuned in out of curiosity to see how Holly would get on. Yeah. And she did a really good job. So there is a bit of pressure on Ant, but I think once they get going, they'll get their script writers on in full work. I'm sure they've been at it for months and months in advance of the series. But I think once they click back, it'll be business as usual. But it's always good to see Ant and Deck. I do think they are a, they are a proper professional pair and they do they do a great job on the jungle. It's their best show by all Yes, stretch. I think so. And I mean, all eyes at the moment on Australia as well because of what's happening in, closer to Sydney than to Brisbane. But but the fires that are burning uh, very, very strongly and, and, and scarily uh, all over the part of some parts of the East Coast. Um, it looks as though there's now a fire about 30 kilometres away from one of the, uh, uh, the, the, the jungle campsites. And I suppose that's quite a long way away, but are there any concerns about mm. that? No, I was talking to ITV about this yesterday, actually. It's one of those that, with a certain slight wind change, it can suddenly go 30 kilometres quite quickly. But right. Mwilumba, where they filmed the show on this old sort of banana plantation, I don't think it's, I mean, unless I jinx it horribly now, it's going to be in any threat. But it is horrendous. Yesterday, Brisbane is nowhere near where these fires are, and the city was completely covered in smoke. Yeah. It's just all blowing up the coast. It's really unpleasant, and it's a national state of emergency in Queensland and New South Wales. So it's pretty unpleasant. But, I mean, this is only a TV show. There is a matter of life and death in some people's lives at the moment because of these fires, but it looks like the jungle won't be affected unless there's a real change of direction of the wind. No, of course. And it's on Sunday night for the first time. Anything happen between now and then in terms of um, sort of any clues as to, as to other people who might be coming in? They normally have a couple of sort of reserves, don't they? Yeah, we, well, the late person is Andrew Wyman, who plays Kirk in Corrie. So we revealed that he was going in. He's now become the latecomer. So the 10 that will go in, we already know all of them. The only one that we hadn't revealed in advance was a comic called Andrew Maxwell. Mm. I must admit, I had no idea who he was when he walked past, past me in the airport. We nearly missed him entirely. Um, he, but comedians do well. I mean, Joel Domit was particularly unknown before he went into the show. He came third, and now he's 
doing the uh, spin-off show. So there's talk of a 12th uh, contestant being drafted in, but we'll see what's left in the coffers. It's expensive business signing all of these celebs. So you see what ITV have left in terms of money. But yeah. what they'll do now in the next couple of days, they start what they call the walk-in. So they'll do a couple of things. I think they have to swim across a jellyfish-infested lake and then uh, climb off a plank off this huge tower <laughs> just up the coast from Brisbane. So they've got all the fun and games ahead of them, and then it's into the jungle. And when so does it we'll finish? See how they get on, and then it finishes three weeks from from Sunday. The, the exact date off the top of my head, I can't remember. Ah. But so I was Sunday just wondering if it finished, would overlap be... the uh, the end of the election period, where you might end up getting somebody who was surprisingly thrown out of politics and they would suddenly turn up in Australia. But I don't think it quite works on the timing. Well, the problem with that, I was, we were thinking about this earlier in the week, actually. I think strict Ofcom rules might stop an MP going in there and protect, or a former MP going in there and talking politics. Yeah. I think that might leave ITV in a tricky situation if you say got, I don't know, Tom Watson, who now is no longer going to stand as an MP, he could be going in there and talking Jeremy Corbyn up or down and ITV might find themselves in bother. But mm. I think that might be why they're keeping that 12th slot open because they're I don't know, John Burko isn't going to do it, apparently, because he wanted too much money. But that sort of person would be great as a latecomer. Because Kirk, as, as well-known as he is to millions as Kirk and Corey, Andrew Wyman, I don't think he's an absolutely outstanding name in mm. terms of the latecomer when no. you compare it to Noel Edmonds, Danny Baker in the past. And I guess they'll take a view as well as to how people are liking who's there already, because if they're quite happy with who's there, they might not need to do something big, whereas if they're flagging a bit, they might need something to give it a boost. Mm. Exactly, and they normally have someone in, in reserve who comes out to Australia and sits in a hotel 30 miles away. In fact, Kate Garraway, I think, was that person last right. year. She was the reserve in case they needed a little boost. So she was back in great spirits, actually. I spoke to her at the airport. She was full of beans mm. and totally terrified. But, yeah, they might have a Kate Garraway tucked away somewhere waiting just in case they do need a little boost. OK. Well, everybody at Talk Radio is still sitting around, so I don't think there's anybody from here. There we go. I can probably give you that as an exclusive. <laughs> Andy, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Andy Hall's there from The Sun, down under with the I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here crowd. be fascinating if they did get somebody like Burko, but uh, uh, as you said, he priced himself out of the market. Let's talk to some more of you, though. 0344 499 1000. Daniel is in Epsom. Hi, Daniel. Mike, I'd pay to see you in the jungle next year, mate. <laughs> well, I mean, if they'd pay me to do it, I might. I think it's the one thing I couldn't do, though. I couldn't eat those horrible grubs and things. I just don't think I could manage that. I think if you was hungry enough, you would, I think. Maybe, maybe. I, I mean, I've I, eaten some of those things before, but I, don't, you know, but I was a lot younger and more stupid. <laughs> well, I'm just bringing it up because I think, I, I think someone's been stupid. I think Nigel Farage has. And I think his strategy is all wrong. Mm. I think he's... He's running in 300-odd seats now. All right, he's done the right thing yesterday. Yeah. But I think what he should have done is taken... He's, he's probably not going to get an MP now. I'd be, I'd be surprised if he gets one or two at the most. And what he should have done is taken his top 10 or 20 candidates like Tyson Heaver and put them in very strategic seats yeah. and worked those seats, concentrated on them, and really put a lot of energy and effort into those seats. And I think that way he might have actually got a few MPs. This kind of scattergun approach, it, I don't think it's, it's very well thought through. And I think, if anything, we can see that... I mean, if, if only two people can be Prime Minister in four weeks' time, the 
Nigel, what's the point? Yes. Why, well, it's why interesting only... to me, Daniel, because um, only a week ago, when he said that Boris's deal was no good, um, the Brexit party line was, we want to stand in every seat so that we get treated like a major party and we get lots of access to the media. Now, if you want to get access to the media but you're not standing everywhere, then what's the point? Because people will get confused. They'll go in uh, to vote for the Brexit party and go, oh, there isn't anybody here from the Brexit party. What do I do now? Exactly my point. So he's, he's, he's helping Boris, but he's only half helping him. And he's not really gaining himself. Why not just help him completely? So for someone looking on, I'm thinking, well, just help him all the way. Let's get a really big mandate. Let's get a really big majority. And you can govern. And the guy that rang up earlier saying, oh, we need to change our politics. I think we need to change the House of Lords. But my wife's family are Italian. And they're saying, they're saying every day that our politics is, they've got proportional representation, but they can't get anything done, mm. right? So we need to find some kind of balancing act between the two because when you have AB, basically if no one's in charge, you can't govern, you can't get anything through. through Everything's a, a coalition, yeah. Yeah. So this this is this is the thing. It's both systems don't seem to work. Um, or I mean, I think first past the post does work. But there are, there are problems with it, like with UKIP in the past. Yes. And I mean, I suppose as the, as the electorate gets more sophisticated and the, and the political landscape becomes more complex, maybe we don't want a two-party system anymore. Maybe you do want more of a coalition government. But I'm like you, I'm, I'm sort of wary of it as well, because I don't like uncertainty. Well, I think what Brexit has done is it's... For, for years, I kind of assumed that people in Parliament were our betters, and I assumed that they were, you know, they would yeah, do what we was your first mistake. And I think, well, I think Brexit's really shone a light onto it. A lot of people now, I think trust in politics is it's the lowest ever. Yeah. Well, look at some of the people that have been in the tent of common sense, for heaven's sake, you know, and you just take your pick out of those for a start. More gun talk from a water pistol from the farmer of fury. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Now look, I said yesterday I didn't want to hear any Christmas songs and all I'm getting now is a Christmas song a day. I know they're doing it deliberately to just annoy me now, right? Because yesterday we had the story um, about how, you know, Christmas was coming too early, basically. All the adverts were going out there that we don't want. It's too early to put the Christmas lights up. It's ridiculously early, right, to be talking about Christmas. It turns out now we're talking about Christmas again because the Green Lobby, God bless their cotton socks, if that's what they are, have apparently said that we should have a greener Christmas and that what we should do is not waste loads and loads of paper wrapping. What we should do is wrap... I mean, you can tell how middle-class these people are, right? Wrap your presents in a scarf. I mean, how many scarves do you think I've got? I've actually got quite a few scarves, but I'm not going to wrap my presents up in them because, you know, that seems ridiculous. Let's talk to Mark Dolan. Now, this is a man who wears quite a lot of scarves, so I imagine that you'll be up with this. Mr Dolan, a very good afternoon to you. Well, top of the afternoon to you, Mike. And Ebenezer Scrooge is uh, alive and well and uh, probably has joined Extinction Rebellion. He's probably gluing himself to something as we speak. I mean, I was saying earlier, what about the carbon footprint of Santa? You know, is he going to be attacked next for flying around the world at such a high speed uh, that he's somehow burning a hole well, in the yeah. ozone layer? Look, I think we can all agree uh, that you know, the environment should be a big priority for, you know, whoever wins the election. Really? And we as citizens um, can can do our bit, you know. I'm not delighted about the fact that if I slice into a salmon fillet, a small... A small what? 
I'll tell you what you're going to do. We're going to get we're going to get you back on the phone because, as usual, um, I'm afraid our technology is letting us down when it comes to Mr. Mark Dolan's connection. We'll come back. But here's what is being revealed by Dame Emma Thompson. Right, she's telling everyone that she's having a sustainable Christmas. I wonder if that means that she's going to be flying anywhere uh, and then carbon offsetting it. We heard just the other day from Caroline Lucas, did we not? Um, when she was asked, well, when was the last time you flew in a plane? She confessed that, well, my son uh, lives in America, so of course I have to go and see him. Um, basically, people are saying, don't have tinsel, use holly and ivy and mistletoe, which is okay, I don't mind that, uh, but tinsel's quite a nice thing to have as well. Also, of course, they're saying, don't buy a Christmas tree, do I rent one? Rent one from who? I think we got Mark back. Mark, sorry, I lost you there in the midst of your uh, wish to be greener at Christmas. No, listen, don't worry about Russian interference. I've been got at by the environmental lobby. <laughs> yeah, they're trying to make you extinct. I think that's what's going on here. But seriously, I mean, you know, are you really going to tell me that you're going to wrap your presents up in some kind of material, right? Scarves, for example, probably take more energy to produce than, than paper does. Well, that's exactly right. And recently, studies have shown that cotton, which we consider to be a natural fibre, yeah. in many ways is less environmentally friendly than polyester because it takes so much energy and so much water to produce it. And you have to have fields in which to grow um, the relevant plants, which, of course, involves cutting down trees. Yeah. So, you know something, Mike? We cannot literally blink without causing some kind of environmental impact. We have to accept, in fact, that probably the planet is finite, we're finite, even though I would love immortality for would Mike you? Graham. Never say never. I don't want to live forever, though, Mark, because, you know, <laughs> I've already ruined most people's lives that I've come to touch, I'm coming to touch with. Why would I want to ruin anybody else's life for the rest of time? Oh, listen, you know something? Your audience <laughs> need you. And the thing is, we, speaking of need, by the way, yes. after what this country's been through in the last year or so, we need Christmas this year. And we need some brightness and some colour. We need tinsel. We need Christmas trees. We need wrapping paper. Because we deserve it. You know, it's like a, a very important... Now you're festival. starting to sound like a millennial. Well, do you know what? I do just think we all need a bit of cheering up. And I cannot believe uh, that the Green Lobby are now um, essentially spoiling Christmas and trying to take our fun away. The bottom oh, no. line is it is about exchanging gifts. It's about, um, you know, presents underneath the tree that I have actually gone to the market and bought, which is always a lovely family ritual. We go and choose the right size tree rather than renting some hand-me-down um, that, that probably, you know, is, is not going to kind of, like, tick all the boxes. Because in the end, you know, Christmas is a special time of the year and it should be celebrated and not spoiled. Now, as you would expect, the audience of the Independent Republic is coming up with some great thoughts here. Here's one from Francis. What if you're giving somebody a scarf? Hey? I mean, <laughs> do you wrap that in a, another scarf? I mean, what do you do? Which one's the present? Which one's the wrapping yeah. paper? I mean, listen, I, you know, I am for, and I've always been I'm quite practical when it comes to Christmas presents, so oh, yeah. I quite like using newspapers as wrapping paper, but not because um, of, of some environmental concern. Yeah, old newspapers. I like to keep old newspapers. Do you, generally use, the very useful. Do you use the ham and high? Uh, well, yeah, that would be a perfect that, rag. That would for, be uh, very middle class of you. A North London bohemian character like me, but you know any 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 old newspapers, old magazines um, is great for the kindling in my uh, wood fired yes um, 
stove, which of course is another thing. That's going to be out soon. Having. Don't worry, you'll have the uh, the police round taking that away from you. What about this from Steve? We bought our grandson a bike for Christmas. Does anyone know where I can buy a twenty five foot scarf to wrap it in? <laughs> <laughs> well, no. I mean, listen, it is it's beyond the joke, isn't it? And I do stress that I think for most of the year, the great British public try very hard. You know, most people I know make an effort to recycle. Um, people are buying cleaner and cleaner cars. I do think we're kind of, um, you know, walking the hard yards on this one. But it's a special time of the year where we indulge and we buy a few presents and stuff is a bit glittery. There's a bit of plastic and maybe there's a bit of a carbon footprint. But in the end, we, we only have one go at this, Mike. We've got to enjoy ourselves. And, and I think, actually, um, in terms of, you know, so-called progress and we're moving in the right direction, I grew up in the 80s and we used to buy our fruit and veg from a, fruit from a street market. Yeah where everything would, would, would um, go into a, a brown paper bag. Brown paper bag, um, yeah. We, we sometimes get a delivery. It would be in a cardboard box. Right. Um, and in many ways, if we're looking for inspiration in terms of how to be more green, I think we can roll back the years and do, do what our parents and grandparents did, um, which is to rely on quite natural resources like paper and yeah. card. Well, you know, I was in Sainsbury's last weekend, right? Went to buy a couple of avocados. Not for me. I hasten to add, um, they had no bags. They've, got, they've done away with those little plastic bags, right, that they have. And instead, they're offering you the opportunity to buy um, a vegetable bag for 30 pence, right, which I'm apparently uh, led to believe is supposed to be for each different vegetable that comes loose, right? So because obviously when you weigh them at the end of the till, they have to, you can't put the lemons and the avocados and the oranges all in one bag because they have to take them all out, right? This is madness oh, to me. Goodness. So I then walk over to this kind of arrangement where they've got a scale. Please enhance your speedy um, delivery of your vegetables by weighing them first before you get to um, the, uh, the till, where we will now print out for you a barcode for you to stick on them, which is also now actually less green already than had there been a bag there, right? I put in... Uh, they, couldn't, they didn't have avocados on the list, so I put in avocado. Couldn't find yeah. it. It couldn't find it. So I had yeah, of to, course it couldn't. So I had I to mean, now, I think in the end, yeah, go on. I, so Sorry. I had to throw the avocados loosely into the basket, <laughs> right? Wander off down to, uh, you know, worried about them getting bruised and everything. Wander off down to the till, um, where they didn't offer me anything other than plastic bags to take it all away in. So, you know, what's the point of getting rid of the smaller plastic bags if there's going to be a bigger one? Well, actually, this is also a conceit from big business. We, as customers, paying customers, yeah. I hasten to add, Mike, are the foot soldiers of what is the biggest virtue signal and exercise yes. of modern times. And what uh, all of the supermarkets are doing by making us walk around a supermarket, impossibly sort of like holding yeah, like that juggling of fruit, milk effectively. And all of that. Yeah, we're all, all more or less going to turn to circus <laughs> performers these days because I refuse to get a basket. Listen, I'm not I paying. to pay 10p for a bag. Also, excuse me, how is it logical to pay 10p for a bag which you get loads of stuff in or 30p for a bag to put hardly any vegetables in? What is? How does that work? Well, exactly. And so I just think it's not truthful and it's not authentic. And let's get back to basics. And maybe, I think, you know, maybe, um, they just, maybe they just prevail. like me to eat the food in the supermarket and <laughs> cut out the middleman. I wonder if they take it away. Oh, no, then we get into the unexpected item in the bagging area. Yes, and, uh, that's never good. 
they're weighing your food. But I mean, you know, in the end, you know, it just is common sense, isn't it? I mean, for example, with your Christmas presents or whatever, um, you know, find a bit of wrapping paper or find some old newspapers. And clearly people do want to, um, you know, make their contribution. But for once a year, we're going to have a party. I mean, the latest thing now, of course, is you're going to have to apologize for eating turkey because that's that's uh, animal protein. And, and probably what we should have is more of your bruised avocado. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you definitely shouldn't have... You should definitely have a vegan Christmas. Bizarrely, right, there's a restaurant very close to our office here called Roast, OK? Do you know yeah. the vegan Christmas dinner is more expensive than the real one? They charge you well, 35 quid. Problem. They charge you 35 quid for the vegan Christmas dinner, 25 quid for the turkey. Well, if you go back to basics and what we were talking about earlier... Um, animal food so whether it's cows or turkeys or chickens or whatever you know these are creatures on god's earth that yeah. we are obviously designed uh, to eat trees naturally grow and we have for millennia cut them down and use them for paper and all other purposes so in other words everything that's natural is the way forward if you're gonna kind of live a life of uh, roasted almonds and uh, smashed avocados. Yeah. I mean, all of those sorts of things require mass agriculture. I mean, there's been a scandal about how much, how many billions of mm. litres of water are involved yes. um, for the, in the growing of our almonds. Yeah. And it's a bit of a crisis now in places like Mexico, where you've got uh, towns and villages who are having their water supply diverted so that we, <laughs> you know, in central so London... So I could get some avocados, but, but no bag to put them in. Yeah. Well, exactly. So, you know, in the end... Um, Follow your own instincts. Yeah. Each citizen has the right to decide uh, how they wrap their Christmas presents and what goes in their gob. And hopefully some of it on Christmas Day will be liquid, Mike. Yes. And just to finish up, I've got a tweet here from uh, uh, Kim who's reminding me that Emma Thompson uh, got into the spirit of things as she attended the UK premiere of Last Christmas at the BFI South Bank in South East London uh, not that long ago. She's wearing glitter in her hair, which I'm led to believe is one of the things that chokes fish in the oceans. So that's nice and yeah. green, isn't it? Well done, Emma. Thank you. Well, I think uh, I, I consider Emma Thompson to be one of the country's biggest polluters. She's an elite hypocrite, I think, in this point. Everything that comes out, out, out of her mouth uh, <laughs> it, it should be uh, sort of placed into landfill. It will probably take decades to decompose. But the bottom line is that she's a talented actress, but, I mean, the ultimate hypocrite. Um, particularly, by the way, um, when she as a movie star is complaining about our environmental impact. Do you have, have you ever been on or even near a film set? I have. And seen how environmentally unfriendly they are with trucks and trucks, catering and um, endless amounts of electricity being used and, you know, materials chucked away because, of course, they build all these sets, then they chuck them. There's nothing less environmentally friendly than a, mo a movie. And the bottom line is a, a movie might be an enjoyable pastime, but it's not essential to our existence as a species, is it? And yet, that is her business and her stock in trade. So I really don't think people in glass houses should be chucking stones. They should and not. She's got a massive great rock. And you should know, of course, asking me a question like, have I ever been on a movie set? I can tell you that I smuggled myself onto a movie set where Jeremy Irons was uh, appearing as Klaus von Bülow. Uh, and I did an interview with him, which ran in the Daily Express many years ago, and the publicists were all very annoyed because they told me I couldn't interview him. <laughs> Is that right? Well, that's, you know, you have always been a rather erstwhile journalist. Exactly. Um, and you don't take no for an answer, Mike. I but, don't. I mean, Emma Thompson, honestly, enough already. I don't know how what we can do to control the amusings of this woman. But, uh, it's, I mean, by the way, the other thing worth pointing out is, um, you know, A, just by existing, uh, we are making an environmental impact. We're going to have to just accept that, that human beings 
cause environmental damage because that's just, I mean, all creatures do. Um, but the other thing is millionaires. Now, she's a very, very wealthy woman. She is. The richer you are, the bigger your carbon footprint because, of course, you fly more, you eat more, you buy more, your clothes are more expensive. So, again, you know, we're totally in the world of hypocrisy here. And I wonder whether people who don't have her privileged multimillionaire existence are actually the real, um, you know, the real saviors of the environment. Because I'm afraid to say if you're at the wrong end of the economic ladder, you don't have the power or the resources to hurt the planet. No, you're not doing any carbon offsetting. But listen, Mark, I'm being told off because we're running late, so we'll have to go. You're back, I presume, to do fake news on Saturday, eh? Yes, so we're, one day we're going to get Mike Graham on the show. That's our pipe dream. Every okay. meeting we have, a we, we have a meeting about it. How are we going to get Mike Graham? It's and easy. Just pay up. me a bucket load of money and enough. I'll do it. Just pay me. Just pay me, Mark, <laughs> and, some, and I'll be there. And some ripe and ready-to-eat avocados. <laughs> exactly, with, in a bag. Thank you very much. Mark Dolan, uh, fake news coming up on Saturday night, of course, here on Talk Radio. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000. We'll try and get another call on today, but if we don't, I apologise if we haven't managed to get you on. We will definitely get you on tomorrow because we are the voice of reason, not just because of what we say, but because of what you say. Uh, and you're the people that really matter in this election, and we are your election station here at Talk Radio. Matthew Wright's coming up at one o'clock. Let's talk now, though, to Professor Darren Griffin. We were just talking about avocados and the fact that, you know, Sainsbury's now no longer will give you a bag for your loose vegetables, which is not the end of the world. It just seems to me if you're going to do that, then why are you still having regular bags to sell made of plastic at the opposite end of the till? Doesn't make any sense to me at all. The story we want to talk to Professor Darren Griffin about, though, uh, is this, and it's rather interesting. If you hate broccoli, cabbage or sprouts, it might be something to do with your genes. Professor Darren, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. How are we doing? Yeah, very well indeed. Now, what do you make of this? Because um, apparently people who possess a specific gene are repulsed by certain vegetables. Now, I know lots of people who were repulsed by certain vegetables, but who have sort of got used to it after a while when they got a bit older. And I've always been of the impression that children are particularly repulsed by vegetables, but, but adults to, less, to a lesser extent. Yeah, so, I mean, um, one thing I've not been able to do is get a hold of the original paper to which this um, press release uh, refers oh, to yeah. because uh, it, it seems to be a little bit of old news. So there must be something in the paper that's got a, a new wrinkle to it. But for an awful long time, we've known about a gene called uh, TAS2R38, okay. which basically means that we can taste, um, some of us can uh, can taste a certain compound that looks incredibly bitter. So even back when, when I was an undergraduate, uh, we used to do this practical class where you'd squirt a little of this um, stuff called PTC or phenylthiocarbamide to your tongue. Right. And you could tell immediately whether someone was paster or not because their, their face would change. Really? Um, and their face would screw up. Okay. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was just very, very obvious. And we would easily uh, into two groups. And, and basically, you you just increase the concentration until everyone could could taste it. Okay. Uh, now I have to say that no matter what concentration, I was one of these people who couldn't taste it at all. <laughs> now, so does that mean you would a, you would be you would not be averse to eating bitter things? Then is that it? No, and I, I love bitter things. I I love lemons and um uh, and, and all sorts of right. stuff. Um and yeah, so so that that's just me being weird, but. 
But certainly there are compounds in things, as you mentioned, like cabbage and Brussels sprouts and, and broccoli, that to some people just taste very, very bitter. So these are the, the brassica yeah. uh, vegetables. Um, Does that mean so that the, 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 the old-fashioned sort of old wives' tale, you've got a sweet tooth, could actually be more true than we know? Um, I, it, it comes as no surprise that there is genetic variation in absolutely anything you, you, you choose to name. And, of course, some people like sweet stuff and some people not, not so much. But, but this is something that is specifically um, identified to one particular gene, this mm. uh, TAS2R38. So I, I'd be very curious to find the paper and what is supposed to be new in this case, because as far as I'm aware, it's, um, uh, it's been around for a while. Apparently it's going to be presented to the American Heart Association conference in Philadelphia this month, so maybe that's the new bit about it. Um, there's apparently yeah. a study in Finland uh, which has found that 11.3% of people have the double PAV combination uh, that makes them very sensitive to bitter taste, while 39.5% had a double AV1 combination that made the bitterness almost undetectable, which is probably what you've got then. Uh, almost certainly, yes. I've, I've not actually been uh, been genotyped for, for that particular one, but, yeah, I, I would guess almost certainly that I had that. The only, so, yeah. the only conclusion I'm drawing from this report, right, is that the people who come up with names for uh, genes, such as TAS2R38, are the same yeah. people that come up with the names for planets, you know, which are always <laughs> just as immovably kind of, you know, uh, dense, and you can't kind of say the word. Why can't you just give it a name? I, I know, uh, and, and one of the problems is, I mean, uh, I'm absolutely certain they're not the same people, but they're probably <laughs> people with the same mindset, right. put it that way. Yeah, no, it's um, interesting, and, but I mean, what about the, the change from when you're a child to when you grow up? Because, you know, broccoli, nobody likes broccoli when they're a child. I mean, if a child likes broccoli, you've got, you've, you know, you've got devil's spawn in the house or something, haven't you? Yeah, I, I think generally speaking, our our uh, taste buds numb over the years, so we we get more tolerant, and uh, you know we we can uh, we can put up with alcohol um, a lot more easily. Uh, we can put up with uh, with hot curries uh, a lot more easily. So I think things do dull, yes. and and we can also rationalise it a little bit better when we're when we're older. So, I always had um, I always had an aversion to to sort of. Um, um, oxidised or whatever you want to call it, you know, fizzy drinks when I was a child. I mean, we would oh. be in Spain on holiday and we'd drive across these impossibly hot kind of deserts, stop in mm. a piscina, and if they only had Fanta or Coke to drink, I wouldn't have anything. Really? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And um, I don't have any problem yeah. with bubbles now. I'll drink champagne, I'll drink beer, I'll drink, you know, gin and tonic, mm -hmm. but I still am not very keen on any sort of fizzy soft drinks for some reason. Oh, there you go. So maybe you were just a weird kid, I don't know. Very possibly. Thank you very much for that. That's what I like to hear at the end of the show. Professor Darren Griffin from the uh, University of Kent, Professor of Genetics. Maybe I was just a weird kid. <laughs> Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.